you know, I was into cool, weird, obscure stuff. But when I showed up there and got to hang out with some really exceptionally smart people, you know, they blew me away. It was like, oh my God, this is insane. It just goes and goes and goes and goes. Welcome to episode six of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Isham Mayette. For the last 20 years, Isham has been one of the principal figures behind Sublime Frequencies, the international slash world music label that he co-founded with Alan Bishop of Sun City Girls in 2003, and that label is still going strong. Uh, more recently, though, Isham started a new reissue label, Bulbous Monocle, which is focused on, and I quote here, reissues dealing with the San Francisco Bay Area musical scene that was extant from the mid-80s to the late 90s. Reissues of the legendary Thinking Fellers Union Local 282 will launch the label with two releases in 2022. And those two releases were Admonishing the Bishops, an EP from 1993, and Strangers from the Universe, an LP from 1994. Something I had not realized before doing this interview was that Isham actually lived in San Francisco throughout the 90s and before that in Santa Cruz, meaning he was a first-hand observer of this uh, era. And had I known that, I probably would have interviewed him for the book, but I really only knew him through his role with Sublime Frequencies. And when I briefly met him in 2005, he was living in uh, Seattle, so I didn't know about his history in San Francisco. That said, uh, we do get into that both in terms of the connection between Thinking Fellers and some of the other acts that might be coming out on Bulbous Monocle, how that music represented a sort of regionalism, both a Bay Area kind of regionalism, but also a West Coast scene that uh, viewed from the East Coast had a certain mythological uh, status in the 1990s. Now, one thing I should add here is that I had gotten a new microphone just before doing this interview, but somehow had not properly selected that in my uh, recording app. And so the recording of my voice in this interview is not so great. But on the bright side, I don't talk a whole lot, so it doesn't affect things too, too much. So with all that said, let's get out of the way and get on with the interview with Isham Mayette. So the first releases on your label are issues of Thinking Fellers Union Local 282. So maybe the place to start would be if you could tell us how and when you first uh, came across their music. Well, it would have been the early 90s when I first heard the Thinking Fellers. And it would have been from releases. Well, the first thing I ever listened or heard and, and knew about would have been uh, Lovelyville which was, I think, released in 91 on Matador Records and uh, subsequently bought every other release thereafter and, and went backwards and bought the record that was before that, which would have been Tangle, I believe. Yeah. Which at the time, uh, all this stuff was readily available in record shops. 
Um, so it wasn't necessarily difficult to track down at that early date. And at that point, be a mother of all saints and moving forward, I was a active record collector, buyer, music uh, of, of anything that I loved or care about. Pretty soon after any release that I was interested in, I would be buying it. I finally had some disposable income and was in a place where I was building my record collection and, and seeing live shows, etc. I, I felt very much part of, um, you know, the the scene in that sense of whatever fanzines were coming out, whatever magazines were coming out, reading up on this stuff, seeing live shows when I could, doing my detective work from credits and seeing what other bands were being thanked and what other bands were on similar labels and whatever tangential information could lead me from from one band to another. Yeah, and what did you associate them with at the time? You know, whether it was stuff that was happening in the Bay Area or stuff that was happening elsewhere, did you sort of mentally group them in with other things? Yeah, I suppose my first exposure to them and, and hearing hearing the music, it, it drew me in geographically in the sense that I, I felt a kinship, obviously, to to the Bay Area or the West Coast, at least around between, you know, I went to college in Santa Cruz, Brio College, which wasn't uh, the UC Santa Cruz, but a smaller college. And uh, we would, you know, go up to San Francisco a lot and see shows there at that time. This would have been late 80s. And so for me, when I I'd left that area and and moved back to Florida and Texas for a couple of years and then moved back. But but when I heard this stuff, Lovelyville, et cetera, Thinking Fellers, it was when I was back on the Gulf Coast. And so there was a real moment there that that after hearing this music or hearing the thinking fellers and realizing they were from from the bay area san francisco or oakland i think they were still living in oakland at this point i wasn't sure or not sure how many of them had moved from from san francisco or moved from the east bay i know their roots were all in the east bay oakland specifically expo facto of course but yeah it just had this sort of impact to me which made me really miss my time in the Bay Area, and, and it was always a place I knew I would head back to, but but it gave me an extra kind of relationship with the music in regards to having been there recently and having left and realizing that there was this regional element to their sound that, that reminded me of bands for me, just off the cuff at a, at a young age, this would have been in my very early 20s, you know, my reference points weren't as refined as they would be 38 years later. So, you know, for me, it was Camper Van Beethoven would have been a band that I didn't think they sounded like, but sort of had the same kind of approach to music in the sense of, of multi-instrumentalists within the band, really clever arrangements, a sense of humor that seemed to be really part of the Bay Area at the time that that I was certainly cognizant of and, and felt a kinship to. And, and so it it gave me yeah kind of a sense of of a, a real regionalism that that made me dig in even deeper in the sense of of uh of what to explore beyond the thinking fellers you know I, I was quite intrigued just by by well the sounds being the things that that drew me in there was a lot of reference points for that uh be it you know noise humor 
really dynamic arrangements, time signatures, again, multi-instrumentalist with all the band, the fact there were three guitars, there were tuba, banjo, viola. It really made it an, an exciting, thrilling listen. And this was, you have to remember, the era of, of really sub-pop and grunge and guys with long hair wearing flannel that were really just, in a sense, the majority of them, not every one of them, the majority of them kind of aping this 70s hard rock zone that I was not really into at all, even at that point. You know, I was looking for something different. And uh, the music of the Thinking Fellers and subsequent research into their scene really opened up a whole new sonic vista in the best way. Yeah, you know, it's true that they came up, you know, in, say, in Iowa, in what would have been kind of by default, uh, sort of post-hardcore, I mean, whatever it was, kind of the underground scene at the time, but their music really connects to a lot of pre-punk, not even necessarily Bay Area, but some idea of West Coast weirdness. Ralph Records being a sort of reference point, but it wasn't that they moved out to the Bay Area because of Ralph Records or something, but like what they were drawing on was in the same kind of spirit as some of this other West Coast music. Uh, yeah, it seemed, uh, I mean, for me, and again, at that age, you know, my, my my musical knowledge was obviously still pretty nascent. You know, I was discovering stuff every day. And uh, so my reference points would have been not so broad in trying to figure out, you know, why and how I would have connected to that music. But, you know, in high school, I, I, I was a huge fan of, of 60s psychedelic music, as much as I was of the contemporary, you know, independent or indie or college rock or whatever you want to call it, scene. And so, you know, be it, be it Kaleidoscope or be it uh, even early Pink Floyd or, or these sorts of acid psychedelic bands. I mean, you could even really, as whatever knowledge of the Grateful Dead that one has, and I'm not saying the Thinking Fellers were influenced by the Grateful Dead. I'm sure they'd heard them, but, but early on in the late 60s to, you know, the, the Grateful Dead really had pretty dynamic musical approach that kind of incorporated a whole bunch of stuff. And that was, those were names that I was familiar with. Also, you know, the, the scene was dominated at that point by kind of an, I mean, on the West Coast or Northwest, I should say, you had the grunge thing going on, but New York was in full flight with the noise rock, scum rock. You know, you have amphetamine reptile in in Minnesota, I think. And, you know, all these scenes were happening really all at the same time. Uh, this is, I'm thinking, you know, 88 to, to 92 for, for a frame of reference. And for me, the fellers represented a real departure from what I thought were a bunch of cul-de-sacs in all those scenes. Not that I wasn't into into uh, Pussy Galore or, or you know, Sonic Youth certainly loomed large for, for a younger person like myself, Dinosaur Jr., etc. Uh, but still, the, the Thinking Fellers added so much more to the compositional elements that uh, I, I thought were just utterly thrilling, you know. And I'm not trying to compare any of this stuff. I was just kind of giving a survey of what I was aware of at that time. And, and, and music scenes at that time were still very regional. 
be it even Southern California at Red Cross, who who I adored as well, just for their own kind of pop art, comedic L.A. representation of glam and pop or, you know, I mean, Flipper was was huge to, to anybody who had gone through hardcore in the mid 80s like I did. So, you know, that was another kind of conceptual sort of barometer to, to also define the Bay Area for me. I hadn't gotten into the residents very much. It may have been too weird for for someone like me at that point. I'd certainly heard of them. So, yeah, it was, I don't know. Hearing that music and, and hearing the fellers was a real fresh slap in the face, you know, and, and which also gave me a, a, a real shot of nostalgia even though i just left it was something it was a place i didn't really want to leave but kind of had to and and luckily i returned you know just a short time later but um yeah that makes any coherent sense once you got back out there i i think you stayed until about 2000 is that right Yep. I left in the fall of 2000. So really the tail end of 2000, you could say I was there all of 2000 and left. I think it was November that uh, I ended up leaving um, San Francisco to go to the Northwest Seattle. Certain things seem to come back in a certain nostalgia cycle uh, over a certain amount of time, but a lot of times that is because they can be kind of packaged together, you know, like let's say the early 2000s, there was a lot of uh, talk about post-punk, this, that, but you know, the, the Thinking Fellers and some of the contemporary stuff, whether it's, you know, Enough Said or Carolina, it's kind of its own deal, but none of that stuff ever really well, if it ever did fit under a, uh, under a category, it doesn't seem to now. And I don't know if that has hindered um, the kind of ability to kind of bring it back, or I don't really know like how people hear it or what people make of it when they're coming to it nowadays. And maybe that's too much of a, a general kind of question, but like apart from say, so an, an animal collective kind of, you know, promoting them or whatever, I, I would kind of, have trouble seeing where you know where they would fit into at least other people's conceptions. You know, I have my own weird conception of San Francisco underground music, but like where people see it and what people make. Well, of it. you know, this, this is an. You, I mean, you bring up Adam Collective, and I know those guys. I know them well. Um, and speaking to them, you know, they were utterly enamored of this West Coast scene. You know, for them, it was a much larger geographic area. It went from Seattle all the way down to San Francisco. You know. And we've had these discussions where, you know, they, I think these guys are probably, I don't know how old they are, but they're probably 10 plus years younger than me. So you put them in the nineties, that was their teen years. Uh, it would have been my mid twenties and, and on. And uh, I think for them, y- you know, it was banana fish magazine loomed incredibly large at that time for a lot of scenes, be it on the East Coast or whatever. And, and I've got lots of friends who, who are the same age as Animal Collective and maybe friends of theirs who discuss, you know, the importance of a magazine like Banana Fish, who, which chronicled the scene uh, in obviously 
you know, the most profound way, if I could use that word. And so for them, you know, and this is me speaking to them or them letting me know about it in a way that, were, you know, for them, it was regional as well. You know, it was, you know, the West Coast at that time was still this sort of exotic place if you'd never traveled there. I mean, if you're from Maryland or D.C. or Jersey or wherever, you know, North Carolina, yeah. North Carolina, <laughs> et cetera, you know, uh, especially back then, pre-Internet or at the dawn of the Internet, uh regionalism still had a mythic element to it wherein you didn't know about these places you just read about them in these underground magazines that somehow made it to tower records or your local indie shop or or what have you and then you know the mythology sort of creates itself and for them it was like you know sun city girls were these tibetan demon gods or the thinking fellers were like you know beef heart and west coast and ex pop experiment you know all these bands put in a blender and and uh and Carolina, for God's sake, you know, probably being uh, uh, the most alien thing that they'd ever encountered, you know. Yeah. And not to say that I didn't feel that way, too, or anybody, for that matter, that that wasn't in this very insulated, very incestuous, localized scene in the Bay Area, Oakland or otherwise, San Francisco, Oakland, etc. So, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I guess. um I didn't really give you a, a, again, there wasn't really a question earlier, but it's kind of like the, the, the early 2000s, there was, uh, I don't know that it really stuck, but there was the talk of new weird America. But, um, you know, that if, if there was any context for, well, Sun City Girls, Think of South Carolina, it would have been as kind of like, well, they're not old weird America, but I mean, they're pre new weird America. I mean, there would be <laughs> some of the, the things that you could point to and say some of these things happening in 2003, 2004, you could, you could say, well, these were some groups doing this kind of whatever this kind of thing is. Where oh, for like, sure. I mean, uh, and, and yeah, just expand on that, I, you know, and, and that was a scene for lack of a better word, you know, I knew a lot of these guys that, that could be labeled new weird America, if you will. I mean, if anywhere from the, no neck blues band the sunburn to to you know matt valentine and his orbit tower recordings etc i mean i think in equal measure you know some of these guys were around too in the mid 90s that's kind of when they started but i think that the influence of of the sun city girls or thinking fellers or banana fish was immense uh for a, for a lot of this scene even new weird america were as much as new weird america for this whatever term it is, and we use it because we're lazy, we don't want to come up with our own term. Um, you know, they drew back a lot from, from the late 60s, free jazz, you know, uh, international music, maybe not so much, but uh, definitely had a kind of, all the elements that we've all discussed that we're all sort of into, you know, this was a large American scene that, that was supported as a byproduct of probably what the 80s independent scene was. But specifically with around the turn of two thousands, you you didn't have name dropping in the sense that um, me, you know mentioning Sun City Girls or Thinking Fellers or Carolina or or what have you. But I think they did have a profound influence in the way that that this later latest or contemporary generation dealt with it, be it Animal Collective or 
a bunch of other, you know, uh, purposefully mysterious and or obscure and or how to label all that is is difficult but you know what i'm trying to say uh yeah. kind of a vibe you know this kind of mysterious weird vibe uh to 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 present the music and the image or or lack thereof um yeah it was 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 a, a big deal i think drew a lot on the persona of of this Bay Area scene that, that we're, we are discussing. So the thingy feller certainly had a uh, a part, and if you hear panting noise, that's not me. That's my dog, but. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, I might pant too later on, but uh, uh, but they had they had a hand in a lot of different uh, quote unquote side projects, but but groups, interesting groups that didn't produce a lot of music, but produced some memorable records. Uh, Job's Daughters, Heavenly Ten Stems, and things like that. Do you remember coming across the Job's Daughters records at the time, or when did you? Do you remember when you came across those and what you made? Yeah, I'm. It, you know, as they were being released and and uh, slowly sunk to the uh, cutout bins, <laughs> uh, you know, Job's Daughters, Archipelago Brewing Company. I mean, obviously, just by sheer geographic um, logistics, all those records were in every record shop in San Francisco, and and they were cheap uh because you know they they either weren't selling or at the time records were cheap anyway i mean you could get a seven inch for for 199 or 299 new and usually they were 99 cents if they'd sat around for longer than a year um so so i mean at that point i I was well into my record collecting fiendish uh zone and and I was devouring everything. I mean, for me, it was just almost even a sense of pride. Like, oh, I, I live in the same city as these weirdos. Man, they got a killer sense of humor. This is great. Oh, wow. Sounds of the American fast food restaurants, whatever, you know. I mean, Amarillo was, was fantastic. Nuff said was great. You had, uh, you know, Carolina clogging the bins. Um, uh all this stuff that that uh and and i devoured it in a sense in that if you know if the thinking fellers were the were was the you know the oak tree all these little acorns were being scooped up uh by me because of the relationship to to the mothership you know as i saw it um you know another amazing cool little artifact was when uh Bryn had released the uh sun city girls thinking fellers the split seven inch covering carolina uh you know it's things like that would just tie a bow around what what you were trying to do in your head with the family tree of, of all this weird stuff you know and and me not knowing all those guys but but doing the detective work in my mind and through these records uh made it a thrilling endeavor in regards to playing detective in your mind and trying to see how all this connected. Cause they were very mysterious, you know, uh, aliases. Um, uh, they certainly had a, 
they were very adept at covering their trail in a lot of ways, you know. And I love that. I love that about music, you know. I, I love the sense of mystery and the sense of making the fan or or listener work for information, you know. I mean that we tried that with sublime frequencies, but when you're dealing with, you know, other people in, in a pre-cancel culture, which is now, you know, a uh, fully ablaze, uh, you know, you can do that when you're localized, but you can't do that and, and present something in a kind of mysterious fashion that, that maybe will allow people to dig even deeper rather than get uh, a very summarized blurb of information that they feel like they can walk away and, and know everything about a culture. So, you know, there is that connection, you know, in the sense of when we started Sublime, you know, we were coming from this, from this scene, I felt like, you know, I mean, I certainly did. I mean, of course, working with 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 Alan and Rick and Charlie and all these guys, I mean, they were of that scene. And so, you know, we were coming from an underground DIY culture that that relished in obfuscation. And, and that was, uh, for me, a real way to proceed and and it's all i ever knew you know for be it going back to the bay area scene or like you know i mean i was obsessed at this point too you know i'm talking mid to late 90s with you know anything out on majora anything out on the expressway label you know i was very much into the new zealand underground scene like huge uh all the while you know buying Anything that you could buy that was, you know, field recordings from Morocco or Tibet or Indonesia, etc. You know, I had a background where I came from, an, you know, overseas and, and grew up in a, you know, Arabic background. So, you know, my parents were listening to, to weird, cool, old 60s, 70s Arabic music. I grew up with that. And I never once thought that was uncool. Never. I, you know, I always embraced it. I always collected those records. I still do. I was... You know, one day in San Francisco, I, there was a great shop, a Middle Eastern shop run by a Syrian guy on. Um, uh, it was like 16th near near Cesar Chavez or Army Street. It was called back then. And and uh, it was like a oh, Middle Eastern oh, grocery. Sonny Ronnie's. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he had dead stock of all these albums, you know, and early on, I was just going in there and buying everything I could buy, you know, and he would have 10 copies of each album. Some of them were covered in black suit because they'd probably been there for, for 20 years at this point. And, uh, and, you know, that stuff, go to Green Apple Books, Amoeba, of course, you know, there was open mind music, there was, um, uh, you know, Jack's Cellar. I don't know if you remember any of these record shops. There was well, I, mean, I, I remember everything except for uh, Jack's. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jack's was in the hate. It was an old, old folky. He had a ton of seventy eights, but I would go in there, you know, and pull a Robbie Basho LP for fifty cents. You know, an original Robbie Basho, which happened a lot back then. You know, John Fahey LPs were two bucks each. Uh, you know, I'm talking early nineties here, so it was, you know, and and. Living in San Francisco at that time was also an incredible time to be a record collector because it was that era that that a lot of people were dumping albums to buy CDs. Yeah. And, you know, a place like the Bay Area, which has had its obvious share of hippies and record collectors and freaks, music or otherwise, you know, there was a lot of records. It would be like Los Angeles or New York. I mean, those are, or Chicago, you know. So I, I've 
felt privileged because I, I knew what was going on. You know, I, I I bought CDs if there were nothing else existed as far as the way that albums would come out. I mean, a lot of bands at that point weren't even releasing vinyl. But if you're a musical excavator like I was, you know, it was just a paradise Shangri-La for building a record collection. So I, you know, I went nuts and and that allowed you to to, you know, one day pick up a Robbie Basho LP, the next day pick up a, you know, field recording from from New Guinea, you know, pick up a weirdo record from Majora at Amoeba in the discount bin in the in the experimental section where if it didn't sell after a month, they dropped the price in half, you know. So um yeah. So yeah, there's I mean, yeah, I mean, because I, I was just thinking, you know, as far as and obviously Sun City Girls would do uh at least versions of songs that you know they might have heard on a shortwave radio somewhere or recorded or come across in some way shape or form but that job's daughters the second job's daughters seven inch where they're doing uh uh specifically the song on the b-side where it's you know it's a chinese title i think you know i don't know where they first heard that song but i guess i'm thinking like if you look at that and then maybe connect that to heavenly ten stems and then you can look at monopo or nonfoc and then mark Jurgis and sublime frequencies like i guess I'm, that particular thread of i don't know, you know I don't say world music but like international music you know asian southeast asian music was something that i didn't see people being aware of before that like you know you weren't going to find a band in 1983 doing a cover of a southeast asian pop song whereas uh, you know it comes in there in the, the early 90s and then you know 10 12 years later sublime frequencies is putting out compilations of stuff that would be very relevant to that and um i don't know not to make too big of a, of a deal out of a, like a particular no no but 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 it's an important it's an important uh you know it's an important link and again, you know, if Alan says, you know, they were they were in the midst of tape trading. I mean, all this stuff was being was being tossed back and forth. You know, these seven inches were coming out. I mean, a, a lot of this stuff. And, and if you're living in a place like San Francisco in the 90s, you know, you it, San Francisco, believe it or not, at one point was a very multicultural working class city. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, every neighborhood had a very distinct ethnic flavor to it and a lot of stuff was available which brings me back to that point of, of Samir's place in the mission or you know you had uh, what was the Indian place down there too um on Valencia that sold all the albums too and it was a del it was an Indian grocery uh yeah yeah I can't quite remember the name but it does ring a bell yeah. yeah, I mean, so so you had all that stuff, you know, I mean, you go to Chinatown, you go to Japantown, Russiatown. I mean, you know, San Francisco was a kind of cornucopia of, of, of all these ethnicities that were existing, you know, pre-assimilation even. I mean, you know, yeah, some were assimilated, meaning like they spoke English and like, you know, got out out of their neighborhoods, but a lot didn't. But I always felt that the West Coast and, and San Francisco in particular, you know, always had this eye or ear across the ponds or the oceans you know there there was always that element to it i mean it goes back to what i mentioned kind of about like even camper van in the mid 80s or early 80s you know you were asking about an example of of you know who was doing that in the early 80s well camper van beethoven you know started to bring in world music elements in a way that that incorporated a lot of ethnic stuff if you will 
but they were probably coming at it because they were listening to like Kaleidoscope or, you know, pop art band or, you know, that kind of thing, you know, which was already a, a sort of cornerstone in the, in the late sixties where a lot of these psychedelic bands were reaching out for other influences beyond uh, blues or jazz or whatever. They were looking, you know, abroad to India, the Middle East, Africa, et cetera. So I think in a sense, you know, Job's daughters, Brandon, Mark, who were very, in, were very intense record collectors were into this stuff as much as, you know, what I was describing earlier, they just had a really broad palette when it came to music. I mean, at that time, too, you had the the kind of um, what was the exotica revitalization thing happening. You know, that brought in a lot of weirdo shit, too, that that ended up making people dig a little bit deeper and a little bit further. You know, with, you know, if it was uh, Esquivel, which then went into other weird stuff and and, you know, each was just kind of a, a seed to kind of keep chasing, you know, and, and um, so I think, yeah you you had a you had a city that allowed record collectors to roam and graze and allowed you to buy a ton of different things at very reasonable prices and from that i think you know whatever turned you on and i'm not going to speak for brandon kearney or mark davies but i assume you know they would come across one of these records and it would just, you know, turn them on to this, to a point that they would go crazy, you know? No, that, that'll make sense. I mean, I, I also wonder, and this is, you know, at the same time that after however long it took for alternative underground music to become mainstream, as that's happening, it seemed like that almost made stuff beyond guitar rock, you know, three to four piece band guitar rock seem more like a, a frontier or, or not a way out, but like a refuge. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like as, as you're seeing this kind of idea of, of you know, an underground rock become kind of MTVified, I could imagine there being kind of distaste for, um, I don't know, seeing the way that was, that stuff was happening. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, certainly I felt that way in in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of bands that that I had a lot of affinity for even in the early 90s, you know, they matured and some became, you know, very popular and 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 quite recognized, more, more mainstream if you will. And certainly for me at that age, you know, that was kind of a you know, that wasn't cool. Like, you know, you, you, if a band made it, you dropped them, you know, from your orbit, but that's a, you know, naive young outlook on things. You know, now when I go back, actually, sometimes I, I prefer later records by most of the bands that, that I enjoy because they had matured. And when you're older, you realize like, oh yeah, well, yeah, they know a whole lot more than they did when they were younger. It may have been more exciting when they were first starting out. But actually, as songwriters, composers, artists, you know, when you're older, you you are generally better, generally speaking, of artists that we respect. I wouldn't say that across the board, obviously, no generalizations. But a scene like this one coming from the Bay Area, I mean, they always tended to, for me, you know, really dwell in the sub underground and relish in it 
but somehow the message still got out there, you know, across the country, if you will. And that really, to me, points to one of the more fundamental aspects of this whole thing is distribution. Because before the internet, if, you know, you had systematic and then you had revolver and then you had subterranean, you know, all of these outfits from the Bay Area were so integral to get this stuff all over the place, you know, from New York to Chicago to the Eastern Seaboard to what have you. And, you know, without those logistics, it would have been an intensely regional scene, I think, you know, where you wouldn't have had the influence of, of bands like Animal Collective or what have you who are on a sort of level now where they can mention the thinking fellers, what have you, and all of a sudden you've got 100,000 new fans, you know. What can you tell us as far as subsequent plans for the label as far as other bands or releases that are planned or releases that you would like to do yeah i mean i'm going to continue mining the the thinking fellers catalog there there are several releases the one we're working on now that's that's hopefully coming together quickly is a double lp of the singles rare tracks uh you know odds and sods is the working title a uh, double LP really with, uh, I want to kind of go all out with a libretto with flyers and artwork, photographs, uh, uh, liner notes to kind of put this in, in perspective. You know, I went pretty minimal with the first two releases, Strangers from the Universe and, and Admonishing the Bishops on purpose. I, I didn't really want to fluff anything up. I, mean, I thought both those releases were were perfect as they as they were released, and I didn't want to add bonus tracks, or I didn't want to add liner notes to it, knowing that this was going to be a long-term um, survey of the band and potentially the scene. And uh, so this one, which is a compilation, I felt it would make sense to put it in a, in a you know, with liner notes and put it in a context of sorts. I didn't think a, an EP, a four-song EP, warn, warranted a whole lot of liner notes or or uh, or bonus tracks or anything like that, or strangers for that matter too. And I I chose those two because they were the most for me the user friendliest fellers material that that would draw in a new audience, and then we would get into the deeper layers of of their catalog. What else? I'm I'm working with Brandon closely. You know, he's given me um, a lot of the Nuff Set archive, World of Pooh recordings. You know, these are things that that need to kind of be really listened to and and decided on. I'm not trying to be a, a scraping the barrel label where I'm wanting to release every last thing. You know, for me, it's it's really an approach about nuggets in a way. Like I, I you know, there's going to be some hard decisions on my end to, to choose what tracks I feel will work or won't, what tracks make sense from a way to kind of lay the scene out uh, that makes sense, both from a aesthetic and financial, you know, position. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing a 17 LP box set of Carolina outtakes. Okay. That'd uh, be good. Yeah. I figure, you know, uh, I'll just keep that in print forever. You can, yeah. The lot, lot grooves on uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, can you tell us anything about 
because uh, you know, so with, with Carolina, in a sense, the mythology of of hey, these are only on vinyl with handmade covers, but you know, some of it has sort of made its way to Bandcamp, and yeah, I mean, that's Grux. I I talked to Grux a couple of weeks ago. I mean, we were supposed to meet up in in uh, the Bay Area a couple of weeks when I was there a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, you know, that's still in negotiations. I mean, I'm I'm I don't know or can't really talk too much about the Carolina thing. Cause I don't really have permission or, or I don't have an agreement or I, the dialogue is still so early in, in regards to, to what I'd like to do to what, you know, Grux is, it w- would allow to happen. I talked to Brentley, you know, potentially I were going to do a, um, a, a comp of, of three day stubble stuff. Um, there's the Nuff Said catalog, like I said, to mine through, maybe just a comp of the singles from Nuff Said. Um, I'm working with uh, Seymour Glass of Banana Fish to kind of have him consult about some really sub-underground, even in regards to this scene, uh, some bands that no one has ever heard of and weird side projects that, that have never really seen the light of day that if the music is there aesthetically, then we'll certainly want to deal with it. And um, what else? Would that include the, the white fronts? The white fronts. Yeah. Is a band that, that I'm uh, enthralled with. I mean, they're a, a couple of these, a couple of the members, I don't know who the white fronts even, I mean, I know who they are. And then some of them are, are, are old friends of good friends of mine now. And so, you know, they certainly haven't been approached or are maybe not even aware that Bulbous Monocle is even a, a, an existing label. And I, I don't even know what the their relationship to the Thinking Fellers is, but I know that Seymour Glass knows who they are and, and has a, a wealth of unreleased material. Brandon Kearney, has a wealth of unreleased material from them. Their album that was self-released from 86 is to me a phenomenal LP that I would tell anyone to go find while they're still available to be found uh, as a private press, mid eighties, San Francisco weirdo project. It's probably, I'd say the vanguard of, of this whole scene that we're talking about. I mean, not that it was that was the intent, but I'd say it's one of the seminal releases of the time. I mean, from a mid '80s standpoint, it's as weird as anything, and really presages a lot of the stuff that we've been discussing. And they weirdly had tangential connections to Camper Van Beethoven. You know, they they backed up Camper Van Beethoven on some tours. They were kind of the weirdo horn section when they would play live. I've heard stories of them uh, on stage draped in, you know, Middle Eastern raps and things playing on acid. So in a sense, they were really there with like early Sun City Girls or Butthole Surfers. You know, they were kind of the the San Francisco version of, of those two maniacal acts. And nobody knows anything about them. You know, they're they're just buried in the lore of, of this geographic scene, the white fronts, all one word. Roast Belief is the name of the album, and it's on their own label, which I'm forgetting the name of right now, but uh, it's, uh, it's a really fantastic release. So all that being said, I, I've got a wealth of material that's unreleased by this band. And so that's definitely uh, one band that I would really want to get into and, and see what else is out there that's available. Yeah, all the Nuff Said 
tendrils, thinking fellers, offshoots. You know, I'm interested in dealing with the white shark material in some capacity. Three-day stubble, world of poo, uh, some other things that that are, you know, it's too much to name. I mean, it really was such a incestuous scene that released a million little artifacts, you know, across multiple mediums, you know. You've got the stomach ache label, uh, Dolor El Estomigo, the Mexican offshoot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, for the in the early punk era, bands weren't making LPs because they, you know, they would tell me they didn't have money or, or you know, they would come up with a seven inch if they were, you know, like a seven inch in 1978 was the equivalent of like an LP in 1985 or something as far as like what tier of band that represented. And then the early eighties bands, you know, some bands could, could graduate to the LP format, but then here we get into the early nineties. And on the one hand, you have major label artists releasing these 55 to 60 minute uh, albums on CD. But then here in the Bay area with this kind of, Again, if we want to call it a scene, there was a lot of really small, small batch kind of stuff, uh, you know, bands that would put out a couple of seven inches and disappear or a lot of stray compilation tracks or I don't really know what to make of that even. But it was maybe it wasn't music that lent itself to, to, to LPs, let alone CDs or, or um, and I don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think honestly, it, it was a highly conceptual endeavor. For everyone involved, at least I would say for Brandon and Greg. Uh, and so within that concept or the conceptual zone, you, you know, the idea was to to whittle it down to maybe its core message, which would make sense with a seven inch record or a cassette or, you know, doing a hundred copies of this or that or the other. I mean, a lot of this stuff wasn't necessarily also just limited to be limited for limited sake. You know, I, th I think they were making this in hopes of it getting out to as many people as possible, but also being being practical and realizing that, you know, it wasn't going to go very far just based on the material itself. Their appeal was selective. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that I mean, there was just so much going on between, you know, Amarillo and and Nuff Said and and all these other labels. I mean, but just between those two, you know. Uh, the breadth of weirdness that was coming out is is uh, is is wonderful for someone like me who who's into collecting this stuff. Uh, the, I mean, the sense of humor to me was was you know such an integral part of it that that made it palpable too. You know, if it didn't have that, I think it, it would have most definitely probably been buried in its own um, self importance or 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 being. Um, pretentious or something you know um but it wasn't any of those things you know for me it it, it i don't know about sincere but uh, that's the right word to use <laughs> but you know we get into that or i mean that we i mean not the royal we but the um you know there's some later chapters i don't think i sent you but that that idea of you know authenticity versus quote unquote concept and and you know because uh, i think that was one of the, the more interesting kind of themes around that time as far as uh what is it that makes a band a band and a concept band a concept band as opposed to just a a band and yeah i mean you you, you get i think at a certain point you just get 
you the scene can get boring really quickly and especially if you've got these you know almost uh saccharine artist types who really tend to overbelieve in their own you know art and and turn it into this really cheesy thing i mean this is turning on its head basically saying like hey man relax you know a lot, a lot of this can just be fun too it can be funny it can make fun of itself it can you know be a conceptual fuck you it can you know don't take it so seriously as to to lose you know any kind of focus about what makes this palpable and and if it means challenging uh the status quo whatever that is at whatever era be it you know late 80s early 90s in the 2000s or what have you i mean you know you're hard pressed to get away with it today but we live in a completely fascist modern state i mean uh good luck trying to to subvert anything in this day and age but back then it was much more freewheeling i mean you know you were encouraged in a way to 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 sort of you know poke the stick or make fun of whatever it was in a way subvert it in a way that that made it you know palpable or made it look at itself you know there, there was some there was a sense of irreverence that came out of the the bay area that contrasted with a certain kind of seriousness that came out of new england and maybe who knows i mean maybe that's a maybe that goes back to colonial days who knows <laughs> i would say so and, and you know that, that's a concept i've thought about a lot whether you know uh, for my age group after college if you will or after high school you know there, there were two paths you went to the northeast or to the west coast i guess some people went to chicago uh i didn't obviously but you know, one for me always represented kind of a past system of tradition, i.e. the Northeast. And the other was just, you know, an open-ended experiment, which was represented by San Francisco for me. And having visited San Francisco at the age of 16 alone, it made it a much easier decision than to try to go to New York in the late 80s and, and experience that. And I'm glad I did. Or, you know, I'm, I would have been fine probably at either place. I think I would probably have been chewed up pretty, pretty intensely in, in New York. But but yeah, this sort of New England regionalism of that era, yeah, seemed much more codified than kind of an open-endedness that that would have been more prevalent on the West Coast. But you had people like, you know, Byron Coley spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, in in San Francisco, working, writing, working at McDonald's drinking, getting into this, that, and the other via live shows or whatever. So he certainly had a, you know, and, and I mentioned Byron Coley and, and Jimmy Johnson, who were the heads of Force Exposure, uh, two people who who were very influential for me. I mean, Force Exposure was the Bible for me at that time, not as it was happening, but a little later on, you know, and I got caught up with all the back issues, et cetera. But uh that was also the tenor of the times on the East Coast. You know, you just kind of had this um, very confrontational, very judgmental, really brash, insulting take on everything. Uh, no one was spared. I mean, if they liked you, you were well liked. But but there was a kind of vibe that that was. And I think it kind of existed in, on the West Coast, too, to be honest with you. I mean, it was the times. You know, the 80s weren't weren't necessarily peace and love it was a lot of it was the anti peace and love but but yeah yeah i mean that's a good point to bring up in regards to to how the regionalism of the northeast and then the west coast differed immensely you know um and in regards to to bands etc 
Yeah, I mean, a whole book could just be written about the regionalism of the United States in the 80s and, and what kind of music was made due to the environment that it was created in, you know, culturally and geographically. You know, it's a fascinating topic for me and and uh, one I'm always happy to to talk about. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, th I think I could imagine myself uh, at, a, you know, 20 years ago or something wanting to take sides with one you know, feeling like I identify with this region or this other in terms of some gestalt that I sense. But but now my feeling is I appreciate the fact that there were these regions and contrasts where as opposed to a a, a monoculture, a, a Netflix monoculture, uh, or, or as I don't know, you know, you kind of wonder where is the room, where is there room for regionalism to show itself? at this point and again. well i mean post internet it, it is complete homogenization of 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 all culture i mean that's that's what it's done in in that sense you know i mean the modern era has just ushered in a complete extinction of biodiversity really i mean whatever's left of it is just much harder to find and so you really have to uh you really have to dig if it even exists anymore. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it is a post, 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 post modern world in the sense that, you know, the 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 crust punk from Gilman Street and the uh, truck driving redneck from you know western Western North Carolina are probably looking at the same Instagram feed. So yeah, there is the the homogenization of of you know at least the United States and Europe in general, yeah, it doesn't lead much to this, you know, what I believed was, was a fantastic biodiversity of, of, of regionalism, you know, from 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And you could argue, you know, that regionalism was even more entrenched back in the fifties and sixties, but, but I wasn't alive back then. So I can just speak to the era that, that, that I grew up in, you know, and so you're always going to have the one generation say, Oh, it was way better back then, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it wasn't way better. It was just different, you know? Yeah. Maybe it was way better. I don't know. <laughs> and you can have regionalism, different parts of the internet, different. Re and, and then, uh, and then as everybody gets brought into the uh, large uh, conglomerates of, then you have regions within Twitter. <laughs> Such and such. Yeah, Twitter. yeah. And I, we may have brought this up last time, but you know, I mean, I grew up in, in the deep south. So for us, it was like, man, REM ruled the roost back in the early 80s. You know, they were the band that everyone, you know, fell in with in the sense that that they felt it was like our band because they're from the south, you know, and pylon, or like I remember all these regional bands, you know, trying to look like REM. And I'm talking like Murmur. Uh, reckoning era, you know, this is 84, 83, 84, 85. Y you know, I'm sure in Southern California it would have probably been Black Flag Minutemen, etc. You know, uh, San Francisco, who knows what probably would have been, you know, what your book is about. So, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, you had the replacements or Who's Do or Soul Asylum, etc. You know, that's the upper Midwest. You know, Chicago had its, uh, its own zone um and so yeah i mean even to loop it right back to where we started this conversation you know the thinking fellers this scene really represented a regional idea for me that 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 because i experienced it young enough and i'd left 
and when it reared its its head when I just left, even though I would be back there, I really connected with it on that visceral level due to the regionalism of of what it was. Be it when I was living in in Santa Cruz, it was a glorious time, but I was 18, I was broke, but it was the best time for that time. And the people that I'd met there really opened my mind in a lot of ways. Like it wasn't hippies, it was just really intelligent people into really cool, weird, obscure stuff that that taught me a lot when I was at that age that that I, you know, I was into cool, weird, obscure stuff. But when I showed up there and got to hang out with some really exceptionally smart people, you know, they blew me away. It was like, oh my God, this is insane. It just goes and goes and goes and goes. Thank you again to Isham Mayette for doing this interview. For more on Bulbous Monocle, go to bulbousmonocle.com or bulbousmonocle.bandcamp.com. And for more on the book, go to whocaresanyway.online. Just fly away Happy that my